everyone fears big banks, and I, I understand why. But if you look at the history of crises in the U.S., almost all of them were happening with the smaller banks, not not the bigger ones. Canada, for instance, uh, when they had Confederation in 1867, they had a merger wave, and they there is some research out there that suggests that that actually brought on stability in the banking system, even before they had the Bank of Canada, which was around 1935, and they didn't even have deposit insurance until 1967. So all that's to say that they had a stable banking system without the typical government institutions that we think do contribute to resilience or stability, at least. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. Today's episode is part two in our resiliency series. Last time we talked housing and the financial crisis, and we're not straying too far from that today. We're going to be talking banking resiliency. For a long time, banks were viewed as big, secure buildings where we kept our money and sometimes went to get a mortgage. Events like the financial crisis, however, tend to force people in the broader economy to wonder, how do we stop bank crises before they begin? Today, we're going to try and get at the heart of that question by discussing what a resilient banking system looks like whether or not we're there after a decade of regulatory responses to the crisis, and where there's room for improvement. To do that, I'm joined once again by Resiliency co-host Brian Knight, Mercatus Center's Senior Research Fellow and expert on a wide variety of financial regulatory issues. Welcome back, Brian. Thanks. Feeling very resilient, Chad. (laughs) Glad to hear it. Brian and I are also happy to have a couple of guests in the studio with us today. First up, Victoria Guida, Financial Services Reporter for Politico Pro. Thanks for spending your morning with us, Victoria. Happy to be here. Thanks. And fresh off the train from Philadelphia, Senior Research Fellow and Mercatus colleague, Steph Mateo-Miller. Thanks for joining us, Steph. Thanks for having me. So I'll start with the easy one. Uh, I say wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Is our banking system resilient? That Maybe put another way, do you all think we could withstand the kinds of banking failures that have led to broader economic crises or problems in the past if one were to spring up today? So I'll, I'll be cynical here and say yes, but not for the right reasons, because the government will back, come in and backstop. Right. And so if I'm Citibank, I'm not worried that I'm ultimately going to die, but for the worst reasons possible. I would say overall, we're probably better off than where we were in the few years before the crisis. But I think in the in the big picture or if you take the long view, if you compare the U.S. with Canada, we have too many crises. Canada's never had one since 1867 when they had confederation. So. In that sense, I think we probably can expect more, and it may be due to the complexity of the legislation and rulemaking that uh, banks are subjected to. Yeah, I mean, when you have as many banks as the United States does, which is way more than anywhere else, uh, you know, I feel like there's always going to be problems that crop up, and there's always going to be some sort of banking crises. I think that the general feeling is that the banking system is safer now given higher levels of capital and liquidity. But I mean, ultimately, when you think about the largest institutions, they're larger and more complex than they were before the crisis. So I agree with Brian that I think that, you know, generally the way that things have worked out is if if you had one large institution fail, it's possible we might be able to, you know, unwind it. But if you had a sort of system-wide crisis, I would think that the government would probably have to step in again. So, like a responsible financial institution, you all you all hedged a little bit in your own your own special way. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna press down a little bit. Let's let's just take as given that we're, if not 
perfect. There's room for improvement, right? So there's there's probably something that we could be doing that policymakers could be doing to move the system towards a more more resilient space. Do you have a favorite or maybe if you don't want to pin yourself down to a specific proposal for improving banking resiliency, maybe what are sort of the ideas that are kicking around right now that maybe have you know reasonable chance of being enacted or maybe they don't, but you think they would be really effective? So, Chet, can I just interject real quick here? Because I, I want to flag flag an issue that I think is important that might be relevant to the, to the secondary question, which is when we say resiliency – do we mean resiliency in the sense that the banking system is resilient or do we mean that banks are resilient or do we mean that the banking system can be beat around and the economy as a whole remains resilient? Because I I at least think that, that we frequently conflate sort of what's good for bank X with what's good for the system, with, with, which, with what's good for the economy as a whole, not without reason, because, you know, particularly the, the very large institutions, there is a reasonable argument to be made that if they get into trouble, there are going to be significant knock-on effects. But if your view is we need to keep – I'm going to pick on Citibank because they deserve it. Uh, like, just kidding. Or am I? Uh, a Citibank, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever, right? Like we need to keep them safe and stable because if Citibank fails, we're all in trouble versus well, we need to have a system where Citibank can fail and we're and the broader system is OK. Kind of like, you know, we let Sears fail. No one said, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen to the retail sector in America? We need to prop up Sears. We let Sears fail. On the other hand, we've rescued Chrysler a couple of times. So, it, you know, it's not just banks that have this. But but what what are we trying to do here? I think if you're taking a bank-level perspective, you can have or you can talk about resiliency, and that can arise from or come from bank capital. There are other measures, plenty of other measures, alternatives that you could do instead, but I think the one we currently do is bank capital. Now, that has a bearing on the entire financial system in the sense that if you have resilient banks, you also have a resilient banking system. But that doesn't necessarily mean that a resilient banking system won't have failures. In fact, I think we should expect failures because when you rely on market forces, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty. We have a division of labor, a very specialized economy. People learn from their mistakes. So I think that's why you would expect uh, to see bank failures because it's just a mistake that we can learn from. Yeah, well, it seems like there are, are – three basic models for looking at this, right? One is the one that we have, which is you have capital requirements and other sorts of prudential measures to try and make sure that each of the largest institutions is, is safe. The other way that you could go about it is, you know, which you hear from a lot of Democrats, which is, well, let's just, you know, put a cap on the size of banks so that they don't get too complex and no, no institution is too systemic. And then, you know, on the other side, I mean, you could you could make banks into some sort of pseudo public institution where they're not even really driven by capitalistic forces, but it's basically the government that's doing that. And so I think it's sort of natural, given the system that we have in the United States, given that this is still um, you know a, a capitalistic country, that um, the choice that that the well, really, the Democrats made in Dodd Frank was to go the route of of higher capital requirements, and it'll be interesting going forward to see whether people feel like that choice was the right one or not. Right, especially going into the twenty twenty presidential primary, where this is 
presumably going to be front and center with, you know, candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Is there a sign that that's not working, right? Is there a reason to want to change that decision? And if I can just add uh, add on to that, I think you're right that Dodd-Frank did have an emphasis on raising capital. But the, the mechanism through which that was done is primarily through the Basel process. And that's been ongoing for the last 30 years. And we've seen a lot of regulation. In fact, I've, I've done some research with a co-author and we found that about 20% of all word counts or regulatory restrictions that you see in the Code of Federal Regulation comes or specifically addresses bank capital. And so the, it was Basel III that actually delved into the details uh, post-crisis. So on the one hand, in the U.S., we had the Dodd-Frank process, but a lot of the the big driver in regulation was the Basel process, which is more of an international form in which that happens. So just to, to pick up on something uh, Victoria said, and I guess sort of amplify slash push back at the same time, you know, we are a generally capitalistic country, though I would argue that our bank banks are one of the sort of least pure capitalistic industries out there because – and they've always – it has been ever thus, right, that it is an incredibly government-distorted market. You need a government charter to participate in banking. Those charters are granted at the government's discretion. The government provides all types of services to banks. It doesn't provide to the non-bank competitors. It Banks have certain regulatory advantages and some regulatory disadvantages compared to their non-bank competitors. Part of the reason why the United States has so many banks relative to our near-peer countries is – we had public policy that mandated things like unit banking where like you can only you can have one bank charter and one bank branch and that's it you know this idea of branching was not universally popular in the united states and interstate branching is relatively recent you know i think it really the the federal law that really formalized it came out in the early 90s so you know this is not a we don't know what a pure a pure free market banking system looks like cuz it's never been tried but it isn't this. And so, you know, we we are – I do feel like sometimes we're kind of like trying – it's just a series of patches on type of other – on top of other patches. on top. Well, that patch broke this something, so we need to go patch it again. And I'm not so naive as to think that we're going to have a pure free market banking system that ship has sailed. But like what I do sometimes wonder if things like Steph's argument for simpler, higher capital and more market discipline, more of an acknowledgement of like, look, if you fail, you fail. That's it. There's no saving coming your way, and everyone needs to be aware of that. Is the, is the alternative that doesn't, I think, necessarily get considered seriously to the extent maybe it should. There are, there are arguments against it, to be sure, but I feel like a lot of a lot of the policy discussions are sort of tink, tinkering at the edges. Yeah, well, and and sort of picking up on that. I mean, you know, there's there's obviously been a trend over the last few decades of consolidation. And the argument that you hear from a lot of the biggest banks is, well, it actually makes much more sense for us to be diversified and complex and large. And that actually insulates us from, you know, having these sort of shocks that you saw in, for example, the saving and loan crisis, where you had all these little institutions that all failed. And, you know, I think that there's a point to be made there, too, which is why, you know, I sort of brought up earlier this notion that it kind of depends on philosophically what you want out of your banking system, right? Because there there's sort of multiple ways to get at the question. And I mean, one of the problems that we kind of have in this country is we're not really having the same conversation, right? So I think that's true in banking as well, which is like, what, what do you actually want banks to be? 
I want to kind of dive in. Brian, you mentioned uh, something Steph has written on in the past, this idea of simple, simpler, higher capital requirements. Because we've mentioned capital requirements in a couple different contexts. I just want to kind of break that out. So on the, on the one hand, you can talk about capital requirements of just how much capital is a bank required to, to hold, right? So what is the level of it? Typically, as you guys said, we associate higher capital requirements with safer banks. But there's also the type. Steph, you had mentioned the Basel framework, which is the, the very rough and unfair way to describe it is just sort of the framework through which we've looked at capital requirements in the past. So what is this idea of simpler or simple capital requirements? How would that be different from the framework that we have now kind of under, under Basel as you were describing it? Right. So in the U.S., we do have a simpler measure of capital, which is basically what I'm talking about. But there are many other measures that come out of this process. So the simple measure is basically equity, the bank's equity relative to total assets. You could also measure it, and I think it's actually a better way to do it, uh, relative to a bank's liabilities, so short-term debt especially. And I say short-term debt because you could also include long-term debt as capital, you know, sort of like the TLAC idea, you, subordinated debt, things like that. These that are the TLAC also, is total loss-absorbing capital. Yes. There are various forms of capital, but it's, it's a non-run-prone form of funding for a bank compared to, let's say, uh, deposits, which are prone to... Right. That's when something goes wrong. Those are the things that everybody runs to the bank and says, no, I want my deposits back. Right. And then that's how you get the bank failure. Or prior to the crisis, you had the overnight repos, repurchasing agreements. There were problems in that market, which were akin to a run. So yes. I'm wondering if you guys kind of have thoughts on this sort of simpler way of looking at it. I know when I when I have chatted with other folks who are more in favor of the sort of Basel framework, their response is often, well, it's nice that we have sort of this idea of the alternative is risk-based capital requirements, right? Where regulators can come in and say, okay, this type of investment or this type of product, we think that's really risky. So if you want to hold that, that's fine, but you're going to need to hold more capital uh, to compensate for that, this other investment or this other thing on your books, that looks a little safer to us. You probably don't need to have uh, as much capital holding back. So those are the kind of, I guess, competing alternatives here. Curious broadly, your all's thoughts on that dichotomy. Should we be headed in one direction or the other? I would say from the risk-based capital perspective, it's nice in principle. The idea is that you should adjust perhaps the asset base that you're measuring uh, your capital relative to, so that you can downweight risk or safer products that the bank might hold, best investment products, and increase the weighting for banks that or products that the bank holds that might be riskier. So the idea is you want to fund with more capital for riskier investments. Now, the problem is the implementation. So it's a lot to ask of officials regulators to figure out what's the best way to do that. Banks can't even necessarily do that because they don't necessarily know what will happen with the investments that they do hold going forward. So it's a lot to ask of regulators to do that. I think there are also some unintended consequences that can arise from that. I've done one paper on the so-called recourse rule, which lowered capital requirements through this risk-weighting idea on the very products that were at the heart of the crisis, the CDOs, private label mortgage-backed securities. And so in a sense, the ones that the banks I found that 
commented on the regulation were also the ones that wound up ramping up their holdings of those very products. And they were also the ones to experience more distress. Yeah, I heard someone say once that um, risk-based capital requirements and the leverage ratio are kind of like chopsticks, where if you only have one of them, you're just stabbing at it, which I thought was (laughs) pretty funny. Because I guess the notion is that you want to have risk-based capital requirements to, you know, allow banks to hold safer assets and not have to be punished for it. But at the same time, you know, you you want to have the leverage ratio as a backstop in case regulators are wrong. But one of the other things that I think is really interesting about regulatory dynamics is, um, you know, the Fed in particular seems to enjoy capital requirements that they can adjust uh, sort of fluidly. So, you know, they have the stress testing where which sort of allows them to have a little bit of a dial to turn up or down. And, you know, you're seeing that now in the way that they're moving toward incorporating the the surcharge, the capital surcharge for the largest banks into different institutions, where now that's kind of more fluid. And then, um, you know, you also have the countercyclical capital buffer, which here in the U.S. we haven't used yet. But that also is something where the regulators have sort of discretion of turning it up or down. And so I would think from that perspective, the regulators probably like risk-based, or at least the Fed, maybe not so much the FDIC, but the Fed likes uh, risk-based requirements because not only does it give sort of flexibility to, to incentivize holding certain assets over, you know, holding safer assets over riskier assets, but it also gives them sort of more flexibility as conditions change. And I, I know the least about this topic of anyone at the table, but I, I do think, and I think it was Aaron Klein who came up with the uh, the the, uh, the chopsticks. But I mean, I guess to, 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 to torture that analogy further, what if you're bad at using chopsticks and... <laughs> Your piece of General So's chicken ends up in your lap, and if you just used a fork and stabbed at it, it wouldn't have been as elegant, but you wouldn't be wearing your food. And I guess the question is, like, how much confidence do we have in regulators being able to accurately predict and dial in these requirements versus taking a blunter, but in in one respect somewhat perhaps safer path of just saying, look, sit on – Steph, was your number 15%? We looked at that because that had been floated around in a number of different contexts. The Fed threw it out uh, in like the Minneapolis Fed's too big to fail plan. They threw that number out. Uh, the Brown-Vitter bill as well threw out the 15%. So that's why. So you know, sit on 15 20% capital. Do what you want, like figure out, you know, make your business judgment about what type of assets you should be holding because that's that's your job as a bank is to exercise business judgment. You're sitting on 15 to 20 percent capital. That's a lot of capital that you have to eat through before the FDIC insurance becomes involved or anything else. And and yes, there is in theory, we are leaving some fine grain tailoring on the table, but we are also playing it arguably a little bit safer and not. And I, you know, I don't know what the answer to this is. If the regulators are good at tailoring, then tailoring makes sense. If the regulators are not particularly good at tailoring, it risks, you know, more than regulatory insecure or regulatory uncertainty. It risks risks regulatory false certainty of like, oh no, these, hey, these mortgage-backed securities, they're safe. You can, you don't have to hold a lot of money uh, against them. The bank is rationally saying. They pay like they're risky, but I have to hold capital like they're safe. This is the best. 
and then it isn't the best anymore. So I just and I like I said, I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's kind of the the question behind the question when we're talking about this is how confident are we in regulators being able to reliably tailor these holdings? And if we're not confident, then we need to go to something a little bit blunter where at least there isn't that 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 hidden risk. And just as an example of why I am not another example of why I'm not so much in favor of risk based capital is that I don't think I, well in the current frameworks I believe they tend to encourage securitization now in and of itself I have no problems with securitization there are a lot of problems that you can solve through that marketplace but I think it encourages banks to get into more than they would so and you saw what was happening prior to the crisis you had the growth of those uh, structure investment vehicles, special purpose entities, or SIVs, SPEs, SPVs, all these. And since the crisis, it seems that a lot of the, not all, but a lot of the growth in fintech has been, they're basically the new SPE, SPEs, SP, SPVs, SIVs, etc. So it's almost, it's not securitization, but if you look at it from a balance sheet perspective, it, it sort of is, so... I'd kind of like to loop back to maybe your first interjection early on in the conversation, Brian, thinking about what does resiliency even mean? And I, Aaron Klein, uh, over at Brookings, his ears are going to be burning because I was going to mention. Love you, Aaron. <laughs> I was going to mention another uh, of his metaphors where he has written in the past about a lack of bank failures sort of being a canary in a coal mine, I think is the, the way he put it. Uh, where if you go, you start going several months over a, over a calendar year without any banks failing, that shouldn't make you think, oh, goody, things are fine. It should make you think, oh, no, what's going wrong? Why aren't banks failing? So back to that sort of overarching question of what does a resilient banking system look like? Are you all concerned about a lack of bank failures? Not that any of you want an individual, any particular bank to fail, but would you would you feel better? Would you sleep better at night if a couple of you know small banks were like, "Oh, we tried this business model and it didn't work out, and so now now we failed"? I mean, to be abundantly clear, I am not rooting for any individual or entity to fail per se, but you know, you want. In in most in most cases in most industries, if you have no failures, that speaks to either stagnation or it speaks to cronyism or it speaks to some other underlying problem where the gales of creative destruction are not occurring. And in banking, you could make an argument that we have both stagnation and cronyism, right? You know, we probably let's put it this way, and I'll pick on the bigger banks rather than the smaller ones. A bank that needs where the government needs to bring in sort of spectacular assistance, I, we should want that type of in, we should want that type of player in any sort of industry. If you're having to get the big government bailout, all else equal, you should probably fail. We should probably have a system where you can fail. And if we have a system where you can't fail for whatever reason, we need to look long and hard at that system because it creates a bunch of perverse incentives and it creates a problem where you know that that big bank that would have failed but for the government rescuing them. They don't fail. The the medium-sized bank that could have come in with the better ideas and, and better hustle and better risk management and could have bought up some of those assets, moved on, they don't get that opportunity because the incumbent survive is, is kept on life support. That strikes me as, as a problem. And you can see where there would be downstream problems with that in terms of 
loss of efficiency, greater moral hazard, uh, you know, just cronyism or, or whatever as a potential issue. So to the extent we have a mindset of, and I do think that unfortunately our regulate well, unfortunately, but understandably, our regulators get into this mindset because if you're the FDIC, you don't want banks failing. You have to resolve them. If you're a bank regulator and you have a bunch of banks fail, Congress will yell at you, right? Congress is never going to be like, way to go culling the herd, guys. They're not going to do that. <laughs> So I understand their incentives are pointed in one direction, but like maybe we want a world where it's like it's okay for banks large and small to fail. That's part of the game. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely important an important indicator, but the question is what is it actually saying? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, theoretically, you know, we did just have a massive financial crisis 10 years ago and there haven't been that many new banks since then. So it's possible that and the economy is still doing pretty well. So it's possible that just all of those banks were cold, to use your word. Um, and, you know, for now, until economic times start to worsen, we're not going to see that many bank failures. Or it might be what you were saying, which is just, you know, cronyism and stagnation, which would obviously not be great. Well, and it could be a little bit of both. And and But the other thing is there, part of the reason we haven't had too many banks enter is the the regulators won't let them enter. Like the FDIC basically froze out new applications for years. And that that speaks to the other side of the problem, right, is if you're not allowing new blood and new competition in. And I understand, like, I understand the FDIC's incentives at the time. Hey, we're coming off this huge financial crisis. We're kind of fully engaged here. Like, we have enough on our plate. Thank you very kindly. I, I'm not saying that from their point of view, that isn't rational. We need to take a step back and say, well, is, is this the type of incentive structure that makes sense. And and so that goes to, yeah, my first interjection of when we when we say I want a resilient banking system, do you mean all of the banks currently in existence never are so resilient they don't fail? Or do you mean a system where, yeah, banks are coming and going and living and dying, but the system as a whole is resilient? And 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 depending on which one you want is going to change how you how you look at what we should be done. And if I can just add, I think Aaron makes a good point in general. Uh, however, the, what we've seen is a lot of the migration of activities into fintech and some of these newer sectors which weren't there. So in a sense, maybe it's because all the risk is moving out. So we, we don't – I don't think there's a good sense out there of where the risks really lie. So in that sense, I wouldn't be so concerned that there is a lack of bank failures. But in general, Yes. Well, and I have a question for you guys, which is, you know, what is the ideal number of banks? I always think it's a really interesting question because, you know, the when we talk about the Genovo question, new banks, um, I feel like the the answer is always, well, we don't have enough new banks. And it's like, well, first of all, what is the correct number of new banks that we should be having? And, you know, is the consolidation that's happening concerning or is it just, you know, replacing economies of scale with what used to be? you know, a different style of banking that, because as you said earlier, I mean, a lot of the reason why we have so many banks is because there were restrictions between banking across state lines and things like that. So, um, you know, maybe that's just what the market's asking for. So I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about that. I knew bringing a journalist on was a mistake. <laughs> well, no, I can chime in because I think that's a great question. I'm not an expert in industrial organization, and that's really the kind of question they might answer. But generally speaking, from the little that I know of that literature, that's one of the issues. You don't really know 
what is the optimal number of firms. So in that sense, I don't think you can answer it. Although I do remember seeing one paper that that had as the title. It was just a working paper on at the time uh, on the optimal number of firms. But so in general, I don't think there is an optimal number, at least not none that I'm aware of. And still, I think uh, that gets to this issue of size. I think size, firm size actually does contribute to resiliency. You know, we're so used to, in this day and age, talking about too big to fail. Everyone fears big banks, and I, I understand why. Uh, but if you look at the history of crises in the U.S., almost all of them were happening with the smaller banks, not not the bigger ones. And Canada, for instance, uh, when they had Confederation in 1867, they had a merger wave. And they there is some research out there that suggests that that actually brought on stability in the banking system even before they had the Bank of Canada, which was around 1935, and they didn't even have deposit insurance until 1967. So all that's to say that they had a stable banking system without the typical government institutions that we think do contribute to resilience or stability, at least. So I will answer your question. I will substitute your question with my own and then answer it, um, <laughs> which is, I, I think... I'm used to it. Yeah. So I, I, th I think that... I think the question, maybe the better question, well, not the better question, but like the different question that I feel comfortable answering is like, what should the process look like where we would derive that number? Because I don't know what the number is, but I, you know, if you go from a system where you have an artificially high number of banks, because in, in no small part, banks were prevented from consolidating or branching or, you know, really competing with each other in a meaningful way for a long, long time. And then- you have a change and you have some very, very, very large banks and some medium-sized banks and then a whole bunch of really small banks that have kind of hung around. I don't know what the exact mix is. I do know that the system prevents us from figuring it out. And then the other thing would be it's not just numbers. It's who, right? Because, you know, you want churn. You want, in theory, banks that are not as good failing and being replaced by new banks that either their customers getting services from existing competitors and, and that sort of place or a new bank coming in. And so, you know, who knows what they, what the number should be. It's just as important to figure out like, well, who owns these banks? Which banks are we talking about? And that's the other, that's the other side of the coin where we again are not able to sort of fully figure it out. And to be, you know, completely fair here, like there are people who make very strong arguments to say, yeah, yeah, Brian, like that, that makes sense in almost any other industry, but banking is different. And if, when banks fail, there are, you know, inordinate side effects. And so that's why we don't treat it like a purely free market. And that's fair as far as it goes, but we need to acknowledge that that's what's, that is what is occurring. And we need to accept, figure out like, well, what are the unintended side effects of that? And can we mitigate those side effects? To your point about how the people need to be served by a different bank, mm. right? I mean, so we talk about too big to fail, and we're obviously talking about the, the banking system. But, you know, for certain rural areas, small towns, there are some very small banks that are, in, in to them, too big to fail, right? Because mm -hmm. if they leave, then who's going to serve them? And so um, I guess that's the other half of my question, which is, you know, are there just banks that, you know, the market shouldn't kill because – those people need banking services and 
no one else is going to give it to them. This is almost the public utility model that you kind of mentioned. It's like one of the options, right? That's a really great question. And I guess to answer that, you really, it depends on your philosophy, right? Because like you can, someone can have a philosophy that says, look, if your town is too poor to sustain a bank, let alone two banks so that when one fails, the other one picks up the slack, that town is dying and everyone should move. I'm not endorsing that view. Then there's the view that says, no, look, like as a as a model of, you know, j- just as a, as a model of sort of decency, social continuity, whatever, in certain areas where we should, in effect, in one way or another, subsidize the provision of banking services into areas where the market itself would not provide because that's a market failure and, and, and whatnot. And, you know, th- that that dovetails in. With a lot of the, I think a lot of the debate that's going on about, you know, more economically marginal areas and what should be done to either reinvigorate them economically or should people instead move to where to more economically vigorous areas. And that's, you know, a question above my pay grade. But that is, I think that is sort of of a piece with that broader debate. And if I can provide another answer, which may get closer to what you're thinking. If you look at the number of banks in Canada, I think it's about f- just under 40, maybe 38 or so. And Canada is maybe 10 times smaller than the U.S. So if you just multiply that by 10, you know, 400 banks, that might be enough to satisfy customers banking for banking services in the U.S. Uh, maybe it's 1,000. But I think banks need to be able to enter into markets where they see opportunities. And I think currently it's very difficult for them to do that. There are a lot of regulations in place that have an influence on banks' decisions. You know, my bank, it was in, when we opened the account, my wife and I, uh, it it was in existence in our area and then they closed shop. So, and I would say that's probably a function of the regulatory sphere that we're we're currently living in. So, well, I'm I'm glad that you ended up asking those questions, Victoria, because I feel like now this conversation can fit all of my other favorite conversations on banking, which end with more questions than we started, uh, which I think is a sign of a is it's a healthy sign. It's a good thing. Uh, so I think we're about out of time, though. So I'm going to have to wrap it up. We will go around the table here real quick, just for folks that want to dive into some of these issues a little bit more, because we hit on a lot of things that I, I feel like we, you know, and you mentioned stress testing, Victoria, and it's like, oh, I want to dive into the stress testing stuff, uh, but we are out of time, so. For folks who are like, this is good stuff, I want to learn more, uh, where can they keep up with your work? And we'll just start with you, Victoria. Well, I write for Politico. I post my stories generally on Twitter. I'm on Twitter all the time. So um, I guess you can follow me, which it's at uh, VTG2. And Brian? Uh, so I guess you could follow me on Twitter, though I have really cut back on the tweeting recently. But you never know. I might fall off the wagon and <laughs> start up again. I'm at Brian R. Knight. And- you can follow me at S. Mateo Miller. Great. And as always, you can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese for any questions, comments, or episode ideas. Thanks to our guests for sharing their time, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Stick around for our What's on Tap segment coming up right after this, and we'll see you next time. Welcome back. This is still the Mercatus Policy Download. I am still your host, Chad Reese, and it is time for What's on Tap. I'm joined by co-host Kate Delanoy, and today we are sampling Old Ox Brewery's Black Ox. It's a rye porter out of Ashburn, Virginia. But before we get to that, 
Kate, why don't you let us know what's going on in Mercatus? Yeah, we've got lots of really great stuff coming out. One of the things that I'm really excited about is a policy brief from Kevin Erdman. He was on in the first segment of the Resiliency podcast series, and he has his book shut out. And so this policy brief really distills those ideas, and it looks at the danger of using monetary policy to address housing affordability. And really what that goes back to is the fact that the Kevin is saying that the causes of the 2008 crisis have really been misdiagnosed. And so if you're going to come in and use monetary policy, but you don't understand what really caused the problems, you know, in the first place, that might not be the right fix. Yeah. So especially for those of you who enjoyed the last episode, but really kind of wanted to take that next step. I think this is a great way for you to dive into Kevin's work a little bit more. So certainly recommend that. Yeah. And then we've got Also, a policy brief from Jennifer Huddleston, who I know has been on the show. She's looked at several of the federal data privacy policy proposals that have come out and reviews them and really warms that, yes, there are harms and things like that. And a policy proposal might be the thing to address those. But anything we do, we need to make sure that we're not being so overly restrictive that we end up cutting out and opportunities for future innovators to come up with new products or things like that. And our our listeners who also view The Bridge and read that content have probably kind of heard this before from Jennifer. She's been writing there a lot on data privacy issues. Uh, You mentioned we just had an episode on data privacy featuring Jennifer's work not that long ago on the Mercatus policy download. So she's active in this space. She's up to date on the latest and it affects everyone. So everyone go read exactly what she just wrote. And speaking of the bridge, we have started a series um, in honor of Women's History Month. Several of our scholars have been looking at some of the contributions of women economists and their work in the markets, uh, even looking at some of the more recent trends like crypto. So several good posts there. Definitely encourage folks to go and check those out. And since you mentioned it is Women's History Month, we are continuing to honor women in the brewing industry and the craft beer industry. And this episode's beer is no exception. Old Ox's head brewer is Allison Lang. She was actually a former biochemist, so kind of the perfect intro career uh, to brewing beer. Um, I have no idea how how she did as a biochemist, but uh, my opinion is she's a pretty darn good beer brewer. Uh, I am a fan of the Black Ox. What are your thoughts? I Yeah, I love Old Ox Brewing Company, and um, I'm a fan of any time rye is added as a flavor in beer. So I think this is a, a solid, good beer, good for sipping. Uh, I'm going to give it a 3.25. Yeah, you mentioned sipping beer. I think that's a good way to describe this one. It is smooth and fairly light, but it's got kind of that spicy characteristic that I associate with rye beers, which is you know, kind of makes you want to take your time with it. So I, I appreciate it. I'm probably a little, little more bullish on it. I, I give it a 3.75 out of 5. Uh, but this is one of my, my go-to dark beers. I think it's a, it's a good anytime beer. With that, thanks for coming on, Kate. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.